You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the privilege, the opportunity that it is to stand in front of your people this evening, to be, not just stand in front of your people, but to be among your people. God, this is such a privilege. It is such a blessing. God, uh, we're going to open your word. And as we open your word, Lord God, I pray that you would just be tangibly present among us. God, I pray that you would remove any hindrances, that you would remove any distractions from among us, that you would remove any demonic influence that would seek to come against or stand between us, not just hearing the preaching of your word, but our hearts being impacted by the preaching of your word in such a way that our lives would be radically changed. God, I just know that as we gather here in this place tonight that I'm not the only one in this room that needs to hear from you. I'm not the only one in this room that struggles with sin on a daily basis. I'm not the only one in this room that struggles and wonders, like, where were you, God, in the midst of that difficulty and that hardship? I know that every one of us walks into this room struggling to believe. So, God, I pray that you would just come and refresh our weary hearts and that you would just come and speak bold words of truth and gospel to us this evening. So, God, I pray that, and I trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. So turn to Luke chapter 15. Back in Luke chapter 15 this evening, for those of you that are part of our church or been here before, you know that we like to take these super long series through. Uh, Luke 15 had a dude kind of giving me some guff about that recently. He was like, man, your series are way too long. I'm like, well, that's just too bad, man, because like the Bible is long, so we're just going to make it long. And there's other preachers out there if you don't like that, so it's okay. Um, you're here tonight, and so we're diving back into Luke. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, been in the Gospel of Luke for uh, years, I think, it seems like. Uh, it's been a long time. And so if you go on our website, you check out that series, there's a ton of them there. If you want to get caught up, go get caught up. Listen to them while you sleep, it'll probably be really good for you. Chapter, chapter 15, what Jesus does is he tells three stories. He tells three stories about the lost getting found by God. And what he does is he does this in response to the Pharisees and the religious leaders that are all around him. And they're, they're kind of giving him some guff, right? Because he's hanging out with people that they wouldn't normally hang out with. And so Jesus is like, yo, want to give me some guff? Fine. Let me tell you some stories. This is Jesus' response. Like if I'm in Jesus' shoes, I pull out my AR and start blasting, right? But Jesus is like, let me tell you some stories. Let's get the storybooks out, kids. Let's sit down. I want you to hear this. And so that's kind of Jesus' response. And he tells these three stories. One story number one, he shares about the lost sheep that gets found by a faithful shepherd. And then he tells this second story about a woman who loses a coin that belongs to her. And so what she does is she searches super diligently. She doesn't give up and she searches until she finds it. And when she finds it, she throws this like fat frat party like in her house that night to celebrate the fact that she found what belonged to her. This is, this is what this woman does when she finds the coin. And then the third story that we read in Luke chapter 15 is all about the story of the lost son who basically like melts his life down, runs out, ruins everything, blows his bank account on cheap women, cheap whiskey, and cheap drugs most likely. And uh, then in the midst of that, he comes back finally with a heart of true repentance before God and other people. And his father like just receives him at the end of the driveway. And then his dad like throws this big fat welcome home party 
for his son also. And the question I think that we've got to ask is this, like what's the big idea of these three stories? As you look at those, you step away from kind of the, the micro details that we'll be looking at tonight. As you step away and you look at it from more like a 10-foot view rather than just being right up on the text, as you're looking at what's the big idea of this text? Like in these stories, I think we learn some things about God that we need to cling to, we need to hold on to. These are things that we learn about God that can encourage us in our worst days. We learn that God is the great shepherd. He's the diligent owner and the loving father. The three things that we learn about God. God is, God is the great shepherd who searches for and finds the sheep that is absentmindedly just kind of like wandered off in the middle of nowhere and gotten himself lost. God is also the diligent owner who searches for his like highly valuable children. You think about this word value. The value of that coin didn't change when it got lost. Your value doesn't change wherever you are at in life. God highly values you. Why? Because he's placed his image in you. You look like him to some extent. You're meant to mirror him and look like him to a world who does not know him. And therefore, he values you highly. And if he values you that highly, that means he's going to go to every extent to find you. That's the picture of God that we find in the scriptures. He sovereignly comes after those whom he owns. And that's you and I if you believe in him. It's you and I. And if you're here and you don't believe in him, it's still quite possible that he owns you and is calling you back to him as his possession, his belonging, searching through the straw on the floor in a little house. God is also the loving father who is waiting with open arms. Waiting with open arms at the end of the driveway with his arms wide open, ready to welcome rebellious and sinful, irresponsible people. People that have made war against him. You and I, all of us, by the ways that we have lived, by the ways that we have thought, by the passions of our heart and the, the things that have stroked our affections and the things that we have desired and wanted, all of us in those ways have made war and sinned against our Holy Father who loves us. And yet, yet, he's waiting at the end of the driveway with his arms open, like just waiting. Like when you come back, he's waiting. He's happy. And he's full of joy. When we come back, this is the God that we come to know through these three stories. What Jesus is doing is painting a picture for all of those religious leaders in this text that are ticked off because he's hanging out with that crowd. That's what's happening in this chapter. In these three stories, Jesus paints a picture of God as the great shepherd, the diligent owner, and the loving father. What's the challenge for us? Like, What's the challenge for us as we listen to Jesus as he tells these three stories? How, how should our hearts and our minds and our lives be affected by these stories? What, what questions should these three stories kind of provoke in our hearts? Lest we just sit here with dead hearts that are in the grave and don't respond and don't apply what God is saying, we must ask this question, how do these three stories apply to us? Have you been found by the great shepherd of your soul? Is that you? Can you say that? Have you been found by the great shepherd of your soul tonight? Or are you still wandering around in darkness? You belong to God. Do you belong to him? Do you belong to the one who has gone to great lengths to diligently find you? Does he own you? 
would rather be owned by God than be owned by half the things that have owned me throughout my life. Many of the things that owned me were destructive. The God that I read about in Scripture is a God who lovingly and sacrificially chases down those who have run far away from Him and gotten lost. And do do you belong to God? Have you returned in true repentance to your Heavenly Father who loves you, who's waiting at the end of the driveway with His arms open? Are you like the lost sheep? Are you like the lost coin? Are you like the lost son? Or are you like the religious elite in our passages that we're reading? What about the older brother, though? Like as we read through all three of these stories, if you take time to read through them, there's also another character kind of sneaking up the back road. He's the older brother in the text. What about him? Like if you've read this story, and if you haven't, we're about to go there here in a minute, but I just want to set the stage for you. Like most of us do not relate to the older brother very much. There's some good reasons for that. We don't identify or relate much to the religious elite or to the older brother. And I think the reality that, uh, that we don't relate to the older brother, that's the reason that we've got to spend some time in this text this evening. Like the lost Older brother is important for us to study because as we study the lost older brother, we, we, we see his refusal to engage, his refusal to engage his father in any meaningful way because of his resentment. And because of his resentment, he then refuses to join in his father's joy of receiving his younger brother back home. Look at Luke 15, 25 through 32 with me. Luke says this, actually Jesus says this as Luke records it. <coughs> now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? He said to him, Son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Like as you hear this passage, as you, as you look at it and read, like, what's your knee-jerk reaction when you hear this story? Like maybe your knee-jerk reaction is, man, that, that older brother, man, he's kind of like an a-hole, man. Like, I wouldn't go that way. I'm not like him in any way. Like, I think that's our knee-jerk reaction is, man, that guy... He's a jerk. I'm not like him. What's your knee-jerk reaction when you see somebody else who has lived offensively before God and others? What runs through your mind when someone offends you? What emotions or desires like well up deep from within your heart when you see someone living in the chaos of sinful behavior? How, how do you treat like other people who are stuck in the destructiveness of their sin? How do you treat them? What would they say? How, how would they say that you treat them? 
When you get around people who have melted their lives down to the last shred of hope that they possibly had. Like, do you refuse to engage them past the level of kind of like the courteous, hey, how you doing? Glad you're here. I'm going to go talk to this guy over here because I'm not sure about you. Like, where are you at in this? Where do you land on this spectrum? I think if most of us are honest before the Lord this evening, I I think we have to admit that we all struggle in these areas, don't we? We struggle in these areas. We, We struggle with refusing to engage people who who have offended us i also think we struggle with being really bitter and angry at times and resentful towards people who have offended us when they like don't get what we think they deserve right look at verses 25 to 28 like in verses 25 to 28 we see the older brother's refusal his refusal is what we see and while the younger brother has been out like melting his life down with wild living, the older brother has been right there at home. He's been right where he belongs, working out in the field on his, in his father's kingdom. And then, and then like when the younger brother comes home from all his crazy living, and he comes home in absolute repentance, the, the older brother doesn't even leave the field. He just stays right where he's at. He doesn't even leave the field to meet his brother with open arms as his father is doing. Instead of being intimately involved in working in the, in the reconciliation process or the res- restoration process between his brother and his father and his family, instead of being there doing gospel work, he's out in the field, staying away, keeping his head down. Refuses to acknowledge his younger brother's arrival. Just keeps his head down, working hard, take care of this physical kingdom that his father had built. Like the reality for us is this, like something that I think that we all kind of have to come to terms with at times is this, like we can't hide from the work of the gospel saving the lost. We can't hide from that. At some point in our lives, we will be confronted with the work of the gospel as Jesus does his work to save lost people. What happens for us is I think we oftentimes get distracted from the work of the gospel. We get distracted with it get distracted from the work of the gospel and saving the lost, but, but eventually we have to face the fact that Jesus is seeking to save the lost. That's the theme of the gospel of Luke. Luke 19.10, Jesus is standing with a tax collector, and he's like, hey man, I, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the older brother in our text, he's like trying to hide from it. He's hiding out in the field in his work, rather than relating to his younger brother when he gets home. The reality is that eventually he had to come home. He couldn't just stay out in the field all the time. Got to come home and change his clothes or take a shower, use the toilet or something, right? Some point he's got to come home. And when he comes home, he's confronted with the fact that his younger brother is there. He's been ignoring this fact all day long. Even if the older brother didn't know all the details, like his refusal to go in and find out what was happening with his younger brother and his dad is really an indicator of where the older brother's heart was. <coughs> like, was he already angry? Did he already have a clue that his younger brother was there? Was he already pissed off that his younger brother could get away with breaking all the rules, still come home and be welcomed and received back into the family without 
like some sort of a tangible period of waiting and testing and punishment? Where was he at? At some point, just like this older brother in the text, we all have to face the fact that the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, is at work saving lost people, and we have a part to play in it. There's a choice to make for us in the midst of this as we find that out. When we are confronted with the work of the gospel at work in saving the lost, we'll have to make some difficult choices. And that's what's happening for this young man in our text. Like for us, we've got to choose whether to join God in his mission to redeem that which was lost or refuse to join him in his mission and basically become lost ourselves and be sitting instead in a place of judgment against those that Jesus is saving. Instead of going into the party and joining the celebration, this older brother refuses to engage his younger brother who had come home. And maybe it was good. I mean, if I put myself in this story, maybe it's good that the older brother didn't at first engage his younger brother because he might have ripped him to shreds, right? Like, how could you live this way? Bam! It's like older brothers should do, right? I think the reason Jesus tells this story this way is he's trying to get a point across. Remember who his audience is. Remember that there's a bunch of religious people standing around. They're complaining and they're whining and they're moaning because things didn't go their way. Jesus didn't act the way that he wanted them to or that they wanted him to. So he's acting differently, so they're whining and moaning. So the older brother, instead of running in and like throwing his arms around his brother, he calls one of the servants over. Hey, yo, come here. Like, I need the down low on what's happening in there. Calls one of the servants over, asks for a report. Like, I can just see the older brother, like, asking his litmus test of questions. Can you see him? Can you see him? Like, you need to go ahead and close your eyes. Can you see him? Just standing there asking, how did my brother get back in? What the heck is going on? Like, did, did my dad even think about the fact that he just broke every stinking rule in the book? Did my dad give him the rundown on what he needs to do to get back in the family? Like, he needs to go back to the servants' quarters before he gets, like, ruled in as a son. He's not even a son yet. What is my dad doing? I just see this conversation taking place between the older brother and this servant. I just see him asking, like, doesn't everyone know that we don't throw parties for rule breakers? We don't throw parties for rule breakers. We throw parties for people who keep the rules. You get rewarded for keeping the rules. You don't get rewarded for breaking them, right? Put yourself in that place. I think that's the question this dude's asking. You hear his voice in your mind? You hear that older brother's voice in your mind right now as you think? Can't you feel his anger? You feel his resentment? Feel how he's getting slighted? Like undermined, even. You even say undermined, like... This dude's been working hard to do everything he's supposed to do, right? And suddenly, this kid brother of his who's been out melting his life down entirely comes back, and his dad is throwing this fat party about it. Can you feel his anger? How ticked off he is. Have you been there? I think every one of us has been there. Can't you see yourself in him? Don't you and I sometimes think the same way? What happens when we do this? Don't we just at that point like refuse to engage relationships with other people graciously simply because we think they're too messy? 
when we're confronted with the work of the gospel and saving the lost, we have to make some difficult decisions. And that's what's happening for this young man in this text. The question for you and I is like, will we choose to cultivate relationships based on rules or grace? Let me think about this for a minute. I mean, this is, this is too easy for us to miss, all right? We want to get everything just right. We want to follow the rules so that we can get rewarded. But that's how we set up our relationships. Like you follow this rule, you follow that rule, you do this thing, you don't say that, you relate to me this way, you don't relate to me that way, you play this music and not this music, you do this and not that, and yeah, we can get along. But we do, often. And when your relationships are based upon the keeping of rules, then when the rules get broken, you no longer have the context for the presence of grace and relationships cannot be restored. You will always see other people as people who get away with doing things that you can't get away with doing. When your rules get broken and they aren't repaired according to like your litmus test of legal laws and formal punishment, then you will effectively cultivate legalistic relationships based upon external results rather than the inworking of grace through the message of the gospel, which is good news for sin-weary rebels. You think about where you're at in this. Do you engage others based upon the message of the gospel of grace? Or do you engage them based upon the message of of the gospel of law. Thou must do X, Y, Z, or I'm going to be pissed at you until you make it better for me. How do you engage messy relationships with you? If you're like the older brother, which I think all of us sometimes are, then just like the older brother, like in verse 28, you, just like I, sometimes will be super angry and you'll refuse to go in and joyfully celebrate when other sinners and rebels come home? Will you choose to cultivate relationships based on rules, based on grace? Like, Listen, when rule-keeping becomes normal, grace becomes foreign, and resentment becomes obvious. When rule-keeping becomes normal, grace becomes foreign, and resentment becomes obvious what happens for you in the context of relationships what happens when you get stuck in the place of refusing relationship to other sinners what happens when your expectations don't get met when your rules don't get kept i think the answer for us sometimes is that we all have a tendency to get bitter and angry and resentful at people when things don't go the way we want them to it's too easy for us to like lay out our cases against other like sinful and rebellious and irresponsible people. And then we get angry. We get angry that they don't do what we want them to do. And then we get resentful when they don't get what they deserve to get. And we get even more resentful when they get what they don't deserve to get, right? That's what happens when you live in this cycle of law and legalism. Now, don't hear me wrong. I, I know who we are as a church. I know where I come from. That doesn't mean you get to go out and sleep with your girlfriend tomorrow, okay? That's not grace. That's stupidity. That's stupidity for me to tell you it's okay to do that. Because that's, that's not the truth of God's word. 
But we don't do what God asks us to do so that He will love us more. That's the point in this. We do what God's asked us to do because God has loved us so much. That should be the motivator. The problem is we oftentimes set up our relationship with God the Father in heaven first, beginning with, you'll love me more, my life will be better, this will happen, that will happen, all these good things will happen if I then do all these things. That's not it. The reality of the gospel message is that we are called and motivated to live our lives out in holiness based upon the gospel. Based upon the message of the gospel of grace. Every one of us in this room is in deep need of God's grace and mercy. God's grace and mercy are two sides of one coin. That coin is love. Without grace, you don't have a complete working of God's love. And without mercy, you don't have a complete working of love either. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's an extension of God's love in completeness towards you and I. And then what we're called to is to, is to then extend that to other people around us. See, those of us that have struggled in this area, the reality is we've struggled to receive God's grace and mercy, and that's why we struggle to extend it. The reason that you and I struggle in rules-based relationships versus grace-based relationships is because we have not truly and authentically received the gospel of grace and mercy which saves us and radically changes our souls. When rule-keeping becomes normal, grace becomes foreign and resentment becomes obvious. <coughs> and in verses 29 through 30, we see the older brother's resentment as we move on from his refusal. Luke tells us that when the father finds out that the older brother is angry and has refused to come to the party, then he comes out and like confronts the older brother for refusing to join in the celebration. Like, can you see them standing there? Can you see the father and the older brother standing right there next to the house? Maybe they're on the sidewalk. Maybe they're in the driveway. They're just in the shadows. It's late at night. The party is happening inside. The bass music is turned up really loud, right? You can hear people dancing. They're eating and they're having a good time. And the older brother is out in the shadows sulking because he's ticked off because his younger brother is getting what he doesn't deserve and he's not getting what he deserves. The older brother's ticked. His dad comes out, and our text tells us that he entreats him or he confronts him. I love that picture. It's not like the father is just like, oh, the older brother's pissed. I'm just going to go hide out inside and not confront the situation. The father comes out, and he's like, hey, because I love you, i got to confront you in this. That's the sense I get from this father in this moment. Because I love you, I not only meet your younger brother at the end of the driveway as he comes home in true repentance, but I'm also going to confront you in the midst of your sin because you've chosen not to repent. Let me entreat you in this. What are you doing? Why aren't you coming in here? That's what's happening in this moment. That's the picture I hope you can see in your head of this father and this older brother out in the driveway. Can you see them standing there? Can you see the older brother like ready to explode because of his anger. Can you see this father just pleading with his son to change his thinking, to change his heart, and to change his behavior? Can you see this dad pleading with his son, please change, please wake up, please come in? Can you feel that 
breaking point for the older brother. As the father attempts to correct him, can you see the older brother's resentment yet in the midst of all this? Imagine yourself in this place. Imagine yourself in this place of that resentful older brother. You've done a good job. You've done it all right. Other than a few minor mishaps throughout your life, you've walked pretty well for the last 24 hours. <laughs> right? <laughs> and now your kid brother, now your kid brother who's always messing things up has come back home and your dad is throwing this big, fat party for your kid brother who's taking things too far this time. And now your dad is confronting you. What do you do? He's confronting you. He's confronting you because you're pissed off at him. And you've refused to join the party because you think it's ridiculous that your dad would reward your little brother after blowing his life on cheap women, cheap drugs, and cheap wine. Right? He's trying to correct you. He's trying to correct your thinking, your affections, trying to correct your behavior. What do you think? What goes through your mind? Here's what goes through mine. How dare you? Like, how dare you confront me in this moment? I've been here this whole time doing everything. Right? Like, what gives you the right to come and talk to me about what I'm doing right now? My younger kid brother has blown his life up, and you're out here confronting me? I've been here this whole time. That's what's happening to this older brother in the midst of this text. How dare he undermine all the years of hard work and faithfulness on my end? How dare he do that? What kind of a dad would do this? And resentment always explodes all over everyone around you. Here's what happens. When our relationships with God and others around us are set up based upon this legalistic system of check marks, you must do X, Y, Z for me to love you, what happens is when someone fails to meet your expectations, you got this high and lofty expectation for somebody, and when they fail to meet that bar and they come in just under, what happens? They fail to meet your expectations, so you get disappointed in them. And then what happens when they fail to meet your expectations over and over and over and over again? Then you get disappointed over and over and over again. Here's the deal. Like, like when you get disappointed and it's not dealt with properly, then it turns into anger. Then you're pissed. And when you get pissed and you don't deal with that properly, then it turns into unforgiveness because you haven't forgiven them. And then when you don't start forgiving somebody, here's what it turns into. Bitterness, you get bitter. Like it starts to seep out of you. And then bitterness at its very logical end becomes resentment. You are so ticked off at this person that it, it seeps out. In fact, it just explodes all over everywhere. No longer gospel juice where it should be, right? It's just you exploding all nasty all over somebody. Because you're full of resentment. Listen to the way he says this. In this moment, in this moment, when his dad is confronting him, listen, listen to these words. Like Jesus, you know Jesus is telling this story intentionally, right? So you know Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who is perfect. The word become life. Like a friend of mine earlier this last weekend was like, hey, my son was like, can we just call Jesus, hey, yo, word, because that's his name? The Word wrote this and spoke this in this moment. So every word of what Jesus says when he 
paints this picture of this older brother is intentional. Look at it. Here's the older brother. He says, after his dad confronts him, this is the way he responds. He explodes, right? Look! These many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, this stinking son of yours, this sick son of yours, this irresponsible son of yours, this sinning son of yours, this disgusting son of yours, this filthy son of yours, not my brother, your son comes home like this, you throw him a party. He's devoured your property with prostitutes. How does a brother know that? He's been out in the field working. How does he know what his brother's done? He just came home. Most commentators think the reason Jesus used this language is that this older brother is basically saying, hey, if I would have been him, I would have devoured your property with prostitutes, so I'm certain that's what he did. Basically judging the book by its cover. He has no clue what's going on. But the reality is that deep down inside, this older brother is just as sinful as the younger brother. You killed the fattened calf for him. Look at all the work I've done. You never honored me this way. I never got what he's getting. I can't believe you would treat him this way. Don't you remember all the pain he's caused you, Dad? Haven't you forgotten how destructive he's been to our family? Why would you go all out for him? Try to get me to join you in the middle of it. Resentment, when it explodes, it comes out all over everybody. It makes a big fat mess. Notice, notice that, that this older brother doesn't even refer to his father by name. He doesn't, he doesn't even say, hey, dad. He's just like, look. It's kind of tantamount to like, pay attention, dad, I'm ticked. He doesn't even use his name. You never got me a goat so I could have a party with my friends. He didn't even say, hey, you never got a goat so I could party with you and invite my friends. He had totally excluded his dad out. He's thinking only about himself. This is where resentment typically comes from. It's when you and I can't stop thinking about how we've gotten so butthurt about something that all we can do is walk around pissed off and angry at everybody around us. They didn't failed to meet our expectations so I got disappointed now I'm pissed at you and now I don't forgive you and now I'm bitter and now I'm resentful and now I'm just going to explode all over you you deserved it. it was your fault that's abusive behavior classic it was their fault I sinned it's your fault you didn't give me what I wanted that's what this guy's doing man think about this with me for a minute this older brother isn't just resentful towards his younger brother. He's actually resentful towards his father. Doesn't address his father by name. Doesn't refer to his brother as his brother, but rather as that son of yours. Older brother is resentful towards his father because his father hasn't behaved in accordance with the list of rules that the older brother had in his pocket. Same with all of us. Isn't this our struggle with resentment at the end of the day? Isn't our resentment really not aimed at the people across from us, but really aimed at God? God, you let me go through that. I did everything you asked me to do, and this is what I get in return for it. Isn't that the way that we then relate to God? The God we relate to is not the God of the universe. So often we relate to Him as a dad who is abusive. 
That's the problem. Is that this young man is not relating to his father as his loving father. He's relating to him as a father who has this legal set of rules. So he's got his list in his pocket of everything he's done right. Isn't that our struggle? Isn't it just an indicator of the fact that our hearts are still in desperate need of receiving God's grace and mercy? Isn't it much easier for us? Think about this. Isn't it much easier for us just to talk about God's mercy and grace? How often in this last week have you talked about God's mercy and grace as an idea or like a theological construct? Like, yeah, man, so I was like here and God was like here and like this is what happens and like it's like two sides of one coin of love and all this other stuff. Like here's the construct of God's mercy and grace, right? I just did that a couple minutes ago, didn't I? How easy is it for us to talk about God's mercy and grace as a theological concept or construct, but then never actually have it engage our hearts in a way that we are set free from what keeps us in bondage, namely this set of laws that you think you're going to keep in your pocket and in your other pocket you've got this other set of laws of something that somebody else didn't do right for you. And the evidence is visible for us in all of our continual making of lists. Lists of right things done. Lists of policies followed. Lists of rules needing to be rewritten. Lists of wrong things done. Lists of policies not followed. Arguing and stewing over the ever-changing set of new rules that we carry around in our pockets. And the list goes on and on and on. This happens with husbands and wives and marriages. Now you didn't pay that bill. You didn't discipline the kid right. You didn't give me enough attention tonight. You, didn't, you failed to meet my expectations for you, therefore you must not love me or I must not love you anymore. This is the reason why marriages fall apart because people aren't actually following Jesus. Like I'm not trying to say that to be like mean and rude to us. I know I'm, I'm in a marriage. I've been married for what, 14 years almost. Marriage is hard. Hard, stinking work. And you can't hide out in the back room thinking it's going to get all better because you pass off this list. It's not just marriage, but it's relationships, period. You want to know the number one reason that marriages are an absolute wreck today is because there are people that say they know God, but they don't actually follow God. Have not authentically received grace and mercy. Because I'll tell you this, people who have received grace and mercy, you know what they do? You know what they do? They take these lists of things and they crumple them up. They throw them. And they go, you know what? You are more important to me than that stinking list. Because you're more important to God than any list. That's why he died. That's why he sent his son to die on a cross. He's perfect. You and I messed up every list that God could have ever made for us. Jesus never messed up. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes, says, hey, I'm going to walk out what love looks like for you. That's my heart and my prayer for us tonight is in the midst of being confronted with the older brother syndrome that is lurking deep within all of our souls. My heart and my prayer for us is that we would just like smack straight into the heart of Jesus in the midst of this. My hope and my prayer is that God would make us like Jesus, willing to sacrifice, willing to love, willing to overlook, willing to go the distance, and ready to just jump in and celebrate when somebody starts to take a step in the right direction. That's my hope. I think that's what God wants too. Listen, when, when, when mercy and grace, when mercy and grace move beyond the place of theological construct, 
And we have to wrestle with truly receiving and extending grace and mercy apart from anything we've done, not done, or planned to do. We must wrestle with receiving and extending God's mercy and grace apart from the lists that we keep in our pockets and the masks that we wear. Because on top of the list that we all pull out and we're like, I did all this bling today, and you, you didn't do all this stuff today, and by the way, let me now put on this mask so I can prove to you how awesome I am, even though the reality is I suck when I walk out of this church. Like those of you that know me, you know this about me. Like you know your pastor is not perfect. And if you ever expect a perfect pastor, find a different church quick. Run for the doors now. My job is to follow by example in the way that I cling to the cross of Christ. Oh, I need Jesus so bad. I get angry with my wife. I cuss and I swear. I have a hard time not doing it when I preach. <laughs> I got filing cabinets of pornography in my mind from all the years of sinful living. Those filing cabinets open up right now. That's when they open up. Like Satan hates the fact that we can come together and open scriptures. There is no weapon formed against me that can prosper. Right? Jesus is the ultimate weapon for us. Like He is the embodiment of grace and mercy and love. doesn't mean we roll up and just hide out underneath the couch and never say anything to each other when we're walking in sin. also doesn't mean we just stand back and be like, man, I don't want to undo you. You're strange. Well, that ain't right either. <laughs> when mercy and grace move beyond the place of mere theological construct, we have to wrestle with truly receiving and extending Grace and mercy, apart from anything we've done, not done, or planned to do, we must wrestle tonight. Receiving and extending God's mercy and grace, apart from the list we keep in our pockets and the masks we choose to wear. Legalistic constructs lead to resentment. Legalistic constructs lead to resentment. But experiencing grace leads to joy. Experiencing grace leads to joy. In verses 31-32, we see the Father's joy just abounding. I have to be honest with you and just confess to all of you, like, like I struggle with this older brother syndrome. When I grew up in a home where rule-keeping was celebrated and rewarded, rule-breaking was punished drastically, harshly, and in ways I don't have time to explain to you, but you get the picture. Many of you in this room have experienced far worse than I. <coughs> So it's easy for me to feel angry, easy for me to feel angry and resentful when either I or someone close to me doesn't follow the rules. It's easy for me to feel happy, like happy and glad, right? I'm happy, I'm feeling glad I got sunshine in a bag. <laughs> because I follow the rules and because somebody else follows the rules. It's easier to feel happy then. Easy for me to feel happy then i get it like rules are put in place for a reason don't hear me wrong like i'm not saying go out and break all the rules i think i made that point earlier well enough i hope and if you want to talk about it more afterwards we can <laughs> i'm not saying go out and break all the rules either rules are put in place to keep us safe and healthy but the problem is not necessarily in the rules or the rule keeping the problem is in the motivation behind our obedience and the enforcement of said rules ask yourself these questions ask yourself this 
Think about this with me for a minute. Like, do you obey the rules and enforce the rules so that you can be happy because you've done the right thing? Like, pat on the back, Joey, I did it good today, yay. I loved my wife pretty good. I didn't say any harsh things. Well, not any that she heard. Right, pat on the back. Is that where you're at? Or do you obey the rules and enforce the rules because you are already full of joy, which is the direct result of being recipients of God's grace and mercy? Is it the joy welling up from within you that causes you to want to obey God? Or is it because you just think that you'll get more happy? I suspect that we all struggle with this. My, my, my suspect is that we all struggle to be motivated in our obedience by the presence of joy rather than being motivated to obedience so that we can be happy. It's good to remember at this point, just good to remember that joy, think about this, joy is something that wells up from within and happiness is something that is conditional upon external circumstances. Joy, joy in the face of external circumstances just continues to exude more joy and obedience. Right? Happiness is attached to external circumstances. What's, what's the remedy? What's like the remedy? What's the shot in the arm for us on this? What's the remedy for the older brother syndrome? And the older brother is unhappy. Older brother is full of resentment. And we're just like the older brother in so many ways. What's the solution? What's the remedy for this thing? What's the good news in the midst of all this bad news? For those of you that don't know, gospel means good news. Here's the deal. You don't get good news unless you get bad news first. Like good news don't even sound like good news if there ain't some bad news first. Yeah, like the bad news, like, holy crap, my daughter's dying. Look, she's alive. She's healed. Great news. Like, that's good news, bad news. So then I go wake my daughter up and I'm look, you're alive. Oh, great news. Hey, there's nothing ever happened. You're fine. You're always healthy. Oh. It's not really good news. Get the picture? In the midst of all this bad news of how we respond to other people like this older brother, the reality is every one of us in this room has this issue. Every one of us in this room, I don't care how kind or nice you are, every one of us in this room struggles with this older brother syndrome. What's the shot for us? The shot is this father's joy. When the father realizes that the older brother is just as sick as the younger brother, look at his response. He, res he responds to the older brother's stubborn refusal and angry resentment this way. He says this. Look, he doesn't stop calling him son. Start there. Son, you are always with me. You are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Can you hear the father's joy just oozing out in his response to the older brother's outburst? Can't you just hear him? Hey, hey, you've been with me forever. You've seen this whole thing. Your brother was dead, but now he's alive. Man, we saw all this bad news, son. All this bad news, like he was out there melting his life down. Look at him, he came back. It's good. It's good. He's not dead anymore. He's like, he was lost. He's found now. That's the Father. That's the Father's joy. That's the Father's love when lost people get found. And in case you've forgotten where you're at today, Christian friend, brother or sister, 
There was a day when you were just as lost, and it doesn't matter if you were lost in your religious systems of keeping everything neat and pretty and pristine with your little mask on, or if you were out banging every chick in town and hitting every vein you could possibly hit and smoking every joint you could possibly get. It doesn't matter which side of this you fall on. At some point, if you are a Christian brother or sister here in the room tonight or hearing this message, then the reality is that when you got found by God, who is an amazing shepherd, an awesome coin owner, and an awesome father who stands at the end of the driveway with his arms waiting for you, that day when you got found, all of heaven went absolutely bat-wild crazy. And you know what happened in hell? They moaned again. They moaned again. Like somebody ought to be clapping right now because that is awesome news, right? Can we just clap for the message of the gospel? Like let's wake up and just get excited because when people get saved by the message of the gospel, lives change. And the change that happens is joy starts bubbling out of you. The Father's inner joy as a recipient and extender of grace and mercy cannot be missed here in this text. This father joyfully calls not just the one lost son who was wayward, but also the lost son who was always with him. He calls both of those sons home to him. It's not one versus the other. It's not, hey, the roughneck crowd over there at the well versus the really uh, you know, clean and, and prim and tidy like a crowd over there like an E-free church. It's not, it's not like that. It's not like that. Like we're all believers at some point if we have trusted in the name of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ at the cross and the power of the empty tomb. If that's you, that makes you a believer, makes you a child of God, no longer a lost and wayward son, regardless of what you wear, regardless of what you look like. It's not about that. This is about heart issues. This text is about heart issues. And this father in this text is joyful to call both crowds back together. That's awesome. That's what the gospel does. calls people of all tribes, all tons, all nations, all races, all colors, all backgrounds, all lineages, all messy types. doesn't matter. The gospel calls every one of us into the same room to be united by one act of history called a cross where somebody was brutally murdered. His body was torn. Torn for you and I before he knew you easy to die for somebody that I know that's my good friend, right? Jesus died for you when you acted like his enemy so that you could become family. It's one of my favorite lines. That's the joy of the Father in this text. And my prayer is simply that the Spirit of God would fill us with this enduring joy in these moments. Joy because of the cross of Christ which gives us the opportunity to become sons and daughters of God. Joy because we catch a vision for the never-ending presence of the love of our Heavenly Father. Joy because we understand that everything in the kingdom of God belongs to us, not because we've earned it, but because God generously poured it out for us, generously gave it to us, not because we earned it, but because God generously gives it to us as a gift that we don't deserve. Joy because we too once were dead in our licentious living and legalistic living, now we've been brought back to life because of God. Because of God who formed faith deep within our hearts to trust in the work of Christ. Joy because we once were lost in the sins of rule breaking as well as rule keeping in accordance with our desires to either 
rule our own lives with irresponsible living or legalistic living, but now we've been found by the grace of God through the mercies of the message of the gospel. That results in joy. Where are you at with all this today? Are you full of stubborn refusal and resentment towards God the Father? Are you being filled with joy because of God's grace and mercy towards you? Question I asked at the beginning. Are you like the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son? Or are you more like the lost religious leaders and the lost older brother tonight? My prayer is that you are like the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And that God the Father in heaven has become your father by the message of the gospel even now in these moments. Let me pray as our music team comes forward. Father, as we close out our time this evening, God, I pray that you would continue to move in our midst. God, I pray that even in these moments that you would save some, that some, many, would come to faith in you for the very first time, and that you would begin even now to just change and transform lives, Lord God. And God, that you would take broken marriages and make them whole again. Pray, God, that you would take broken hearts and heal them. Pray, God, that you would take lonely people and remind us of the nearness of your spirit to us and that you would give us comfort and peace and rest in you. I pray you would just call many to follow you and to love you, and I pray that the evidence of the work of the cross of Christ would be obvious and visible in our little church family. Jesus' name. Everybody said? Thanks for letting me preach, guys. I love you. We're going to spend some time in worship, but don't stand yet. <coughs> this is a hard message, right? Like every week, I suppose. This is a hard message to hear. <coughs> what I don't want is, I don't want you guys to come and take communion if you're in a bad place. Hear me on this. That should shock you for a minute when I say that. Because on the flip side, I want you to come and take communion if you're in a bad place. What does the pastor mean? He's really confusing me, right? Good. If you're in that bad place where you're like, man, I just need Jesus to save me and to change me, you need to get down here and take communion here in a few minutes, okay? If you're in that place where, where you're still uh, struggling and wrestling, like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, don't do it then. Don't do it then because you'd be doing something that means nothing to you. Not only that, but if you're a believer here and you're struggling some places of unrepentance, some, some sin that you're living in that is dominating your life. I'm not talking about getting up and like seeing a chick walk down the street and be like, oh, oh crap, that's lust, okay. Uh, Jesus, please forgive me. I'm not talking about that, all right? I'm not talking about just got angry with your wife and you needed to say you're sorry. And maybe you do. Like if you're here and you haven't done that, maybe you need to turn to your wife or your husband right now and you need to get down on your knees and beg Jesus to keep it together for you. Beg him to change your life and change your heart, right? You should probably be doing some of those things before you engage in communion. Uh, Paul in Corinthians is really clear that we should examine ourselves before engaging in remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, lest we drink judgment upon ourselves and lest we become a community that is bringing judgment upon us. This is a serious matter. You don't have to be a member of our church. We just trust that 
You're going to hear from the Spirit and do what you're called to do. But my encouragement to you is like for the few, first few bars of this song, I also want to like see every head bowed, every eye closed. It's asking the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, what areas of your thinking and your desires, your passions and your behavior in your life, do you just need to confess to someone next to you right now maybe? Or maybe you need to come down and confess that to a few of us near the front and receive some prayer. And just maybe begin to walk out what repentance actually looks like. Right? So I'm going to ask you guys, spend a few minutes soul searching and asking God to speak to you before you come. Man, when you come, come with joy. Come with joy remembering that Jesus gave himself so that you and I could be made right with our Father in heaven and so that we could continue to be changed. And then as you take the bread and the juice, remember that. Pray that that fills you with joy. There will be a few near the front to pray with you and a few near the front to serve you communion as you're ready. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.